Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. Uh, the app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Today, we're going to look at how worship changes us, and we'll focus on Psalm 73 today. Uh, we'll look at what worship does when we devote ourselves to it. This is what the psalmist writes. Surely God is good to the upright, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now I'm wondering right here, have you had an envy-free week this week? And were you able to go through the last seven days and the thought of being jealous of another person never entered your mind? It never occurred to you to say, I wish I had that person's job or status or marriage or personality. I wish I had their waistline, hairline, byline, or bottom line. Your greatest rival got a whopping promotion, lost 25 pounds, looks great, got married to an ex-supermodel turned neurosurgeon, and your only response was, good for you, I'm thrilled. How about pride? Did you find your thoughts this week ran automatically to humility and servanthood? Now, like no thoughts of selfish ambition or arrogance, no attempts to manipulate or control others, no self-serving statements, no impression management going on. Were you able to have a pride-free, arrogance-removed week of humility and self-denial? And you're really, you're feeling great about it right now? <laughs> well, I didn't. We live in a world us that usually does not produce those kinds of minds. But I'll tell you something that could happen. You could show up to a worship gathering and sing songs that move your heart and mind toward these things. I guarantee you there are people all over this world who had problems they couldn't solve. And when they started to worship and sing songs like, there is joy in the house of the Lord. We sing to the Lord who heals. We sing to the Lord who saves. We sing to the God who always makes a way. You know, something happens inside of them, a kind of hope or a trust wells up inside of them. And they started to think it really is true that there is joy in the midst of worship and God really does make a way. He can turn things around. I'm sure there are some people who remembered what Paul was saying when he was in prison, when he wrote these words, I can face all things through Christ who strengthens me. I'm sure the thought was born in some people that the God who delivered Daniel from the lions and the God who delivered David from Goliath and Elijah from Jezebel can deliver them too. There are people all over this world who gather to worship God and their world looks different because of it. See, some people feel lonely or unloved because they're not in the relationship that they feel that they so desperately need or want and then they start to sing, God, I don't want anyone else. I don't need anyone else. Just give me Jesus. You can have all this world. Just give me Jesus. And something started to happen in their hearts. Their desires started to turn toward God and they realized he's able to meet those needs better than any human being on this earth. 
There are people all over this world who gather to worship with hard hearts and broken spirits because maybe they're stuck in sin and they refuse to allow the spirit to convict them of it. And God is calling them to repent and receive forgiveness and live in his grace. But they've said, no, I'm not gonna do it. I'm gonna withhold myself from your grace. And then someone led them in singing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved the rest like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And a stubborn heart began to melt. And they said to God, I want your forgiveness. I want to be accepted by you. I want to live in your grace. Here's what happens all around the world when people gather to worship. They get ambushed by God. I don't know how else to say it, but they get ambushed by God. And they're not quite the same because they met God in a time of worship. Now, the main point of the message last week was worship is about God. Like we worship God solely because God is worthy, because he is immeasurably, incalculably, unalterably good. We don't worship to get something out of it. But because God is so good, when we worship, we do get something out of it. When we worship, here's what happens. Our hearts get full of joy and we get grateful for what we have and we get filled up with confidence because God is just good to us when we meet him in worship. We have surrendered spirits and all of a sudden something happens inside of us and we want to avoid sin and we're humbled. Like even arrogant people like you and me, we get humbled before God's greatness. We genuinely want to share our faith in this great God with people who don't know him. And we're filled with hope for the day when every wounded soul is going to be made whole. When we worship, that happens. But when I don't worship, when I refuse to enter into worship, other things happen in my mind. I become anxious about tomorrow. I envy people who have what I don't. I develop a sense of entitlement that says, I ought to have this and it chokes off my gratitude. I become negative and judgmental toward other people. I get discouraged and easily defeated by setbacks. That's the non-worshipping mind. So what kind of mind do you want to have? What kind of life do you want to live? Now, there is no clear example, I think, in all of Scripture of the difference between a non-worshipping mind and a worshipping mind, the non-worshipping heart and the worshipping heart, than in Psalm 73. We've already seen the start of it. The psalmist says, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then we see his life and his heart now. Verse four, they have no struggles. He's talking about the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're beautiful people. They're wicked, but they're the kind of people that end up on magazine covers. Verse five, they are free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. They don't seem to have financial problems. They defy God and sin boldly, but their careers are flourishing. They vacation wherever they want. They lead the good life. The psalmist says, I don't understand this. And then verse six, therefore, because their lives are turning out so well, pride is their necklace. In other words, pride for them is not something that they bury in their hearts because they're rightfully ashamed of it. They flaunt it the way that people flaunt jewelry. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. 
The general idea seems to be that they are arrogant. They think they've got life figured out. They're opposed to God, but life is kind of turning out exactly the way they want. And not just that, verse 10, therefore, precisely because their lives are turning out so well, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. The people praise them. Instead of them being the object of moral judgment, which is by all rights what they should be, they're praised. They're the ones we look up to. And everyone says, they know how to live. Like they're the ones to learn from. They're the ones that write the books that we read. People find no fault with them. Worse still, they openly mock God. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? In other words, I don't have to be accountable to God. I don't have to bow before them. I don't have to follow his word for my life. The psalmist says they're wicked and they openly mock God and God does nothing. And then the psalmist goes on. He says it's bad enough they're doing so well, but the psalmist says what makes it exponentially worse is I'm trying so hard to be righteous and it's not paying off. I'm in worse shape than they are. Look at verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Now look what the psalmist says about himself. Surely in vain, I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. It's all in vain because look at my life next to theirs. All day long, I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. We don't know what the plague or punishments consisted of, uh, but the psalmist looks at their life and their defiance against God and the fact that God seems to do nothing. And then he looks on the other side of the scale. You know, I go to church, I read the Bible, I tithe my salary, I avoid gross sin. What's the payoff? Like, what good is it doing? I'm not getting bigger houses, newer cars, nicer clothes. Do you ever have thoughts like that? <laughs> I know I do. He realizes this is going to kill him. This will destroy his soul. Verse 15, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. Notice the importance of community here. He's uh, talking about here how there's this sense of loyalty to the community. That's the only thing that's keeping him in the game. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. My envy could make me disloyal to everything it is that I value. Verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Like I'm powerless. This doesn't make any sense, he says. He's hanging on to his spiritual integrity by a slender thread. And maybe you are as well today. On the one hand, if he gives in, gives in to his cynicism, he will betray everything that has meaning and his God who has given him identity in the one community where he belongs. On the other hand, the unfairness of life and his unhappiness have driven him to the brink of, brink of despair. This is the state of his mind. Confused, discouraged, bitter, envious, unhappy, far from God, double-minded, tossed forward and backwards, tempted, exhausted. I can't make sense of it, he says. And then, this is so beautiful, here comes the turning point in this whole psalm. Like here comes the hinge upon which his soul swings from death to life. He's just walking down the road toward death and despair and darkness. And then verse 17, until I entered the sanctuary of God, then I understood their final destiny. Until I entered 
the sanctuary of God, he says, until I practiced again the discipline of gathering with God's people, even though there was not a happy bone in my body. It wasn't until finally I consciously entered the presence of God and encountered his goodness and devoted myself to worship, even though I didn't feel like it. It was then that my thoughts and feelings were turned around 180 degrees. And the way that I looked at the world and myself was flipped upside down. And in worship, finally, God gave me a sane mind. And now I want you to notice three things the psalmist was given in worship. He was given perspective, he says, verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors? They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. The psalmist says, I realized when I went into worship, when I entered the sanctuary, there's more to reality than just the stuff that I can see and hear. And remember what he said, when I entered the sanctuary, today's asset list and financial portfolios are not the final word. They are not the way the score is going to be kept in the end of this day. I remember that every human being is one heartbeat away, just one from giving an account of their life to a transcendent God who is breathtakingly powerful and utterly just. Every human being is. And that's why we need to be so committed to evangelism at Blue Oaks. Because every human being you see who does not know God is in the slipperiest of places. No matter what the, their bank account looks like, no matter how big their house is or how new their car is, they're one heartbeat away from giving an account of their life to a transcendent God who is breathtakingly powerful and utterly just. And part of what I need to do is remember that and allow that reality to shape my prayer life. Last week, I spent some time talking to a guy in our neighborhood. And after that interaction, I spent some time praying for him and for my contact with him because I thought he is in a slippery place. He's just one heartbeat away. I met a friend who uh, doesn't go to church and doesn't really believe in God. And before we met, I spent some time praying, God, would you bless this conversation? Would you open the door to a conversation about you? Because he's one heartbeat away. Do you realize that your friends and neighbors and coworkers, people that you love and people that you envy are on a slippery place? They're one heartbeat away from a holy God. The psalmist says, in worship, it's like my eyes were opened. It's like the lights came on. I saw people that I envied and there I realized they're the ones who are to be most pitied and are the, one, the ones to be reached out to. In worship, I was given that perspective. Also in worship, the psalmist says, I was able to diagnose the condition of my heart. That's the second thing that happens in worship. I'm able to diagnose the condition of my heart, verses 21 and 22. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and arrogant. He doesn't hold back here. I was a brute beast before you. I was talking to a friend a couple weeks ago who has a dog and he has an electric fence to keep the dog in the yard. I don't know if you're familiar with electric fences, but the way they work is there's some kind of electric shock kind of thing that's buried under the ground. Um, and they place some kind of electrode or something like that on the dog so that the dog goes near that border where the electric shock stuff is buried 
the dog will get shocked. He was telling me that his own dog has a strong impulse control disorder and wants to leave the yard on a pretty regular basis, particularly when a girl dog, uh, any girl dog, because this dog is not choosy, any girl dog happens to walk by. He said he'll watch his dog sometimes and the girl dog will go by and he could see his dog just stop for a minute and kind of think to himself, I'd like to pursue that relationship, but I know there is going to be pain. Is it worth it? And the dog will kind of cock his head and say, yeah, I think it's worth it. And this is what he does. This dog will take off from one end of the yard, build up enough of uh, a uh, speed, like a full head of steam until he gets to the electric fence. And the shock is so great because they've ramped it up as about as high as it can go. It will knock the dog out, but his momentum will carry him beyond the border. So the dog just lays there unconscious in a coma. And then he wakes up, shakes himself off and goes running, chasing this girl down. He pursues the relationship, but it never lasts. He always comes back home. He always does. And then he goes through that whole uh, thing again, but he never learns. It's not worth it, dog, it's not worth it. But he never learns. And only a dog would do that, right? The psalmist says, I was like that. I was like a beast, I was like an animal. I let my mind and my heart violate God's boundaries. I thought I was so righteous. You know, the 10 commandment about coveting and so on, I was living in a nonstop mode of breaking that commandment. Here, I thought I was so righteous. Like fundamental command, love your neighbor as yourself. I couldn't even live up to that one. The duty of a God follower, you know, God, love God and love uh, your, your neighbor. I couldn't even do that one but I thought I was so righteous. He says, I was like a dumb animal. I just given to envy, bitterness, self-righteousness, judgmentalism. Does that ever lead to life? I mean, you think that way sometimes, and so do I. Does it ever lead to life, to satisfaction, to fulfillment, to joy? No, only to pain, only to hurt and regret. Yet the psalmist says, I give into it all the time. Time after time after time, I was like a dumb beast until, thank God, one day I entered into the sanctuary and I practiced the discipline of worship and I remembered, I don't wanna live like that. And then this wonderful truth, in worship, I remember I'm not alone. In worship, I remember, I experience again the truth, I am not alone. In verse 23, the psalmist says, nevertheless, Here's the truth about me. My soul was embittered. I was pricked in the heart. I was stupid and arrogant. I was like a brute beast toward God on a self-destructive, defiant, unloving path. Nevertheless, I even I continue, am continually with you. And his heart is so overwhelmed with love for God that now you'll notice he begins to talk directly to God. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Just think about walking through life with God holding your hand like a, a child with a father holding on to you. You guide me with your counsel. You keep me from making stupid mistakes. And after you, afterward, you will uh, take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. It may happen. I may not ever be one of the beautiful rich people, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. 
Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. You can just hear the psalmist saying, what if I hadn't gone into the sanctuary? What if I'd avoided worship? What if I had neglected the gathering? I would have gone on in bitterness and envy. I would have made stupid decisions. I would have lived with an ungrateful heart. I would have been set up for sinful behavior. I would have spoken toxic words. I would have lived blind to the reality of God. I would have thrown my life away. Thank God for the sanctuary. You can hear him say it. Thank God for the discipline of worship. And you know what? I think you could affirm that. Almost everyone I know could stand up and say, there have been times when I was headed down this Psalm 73 path. I would have made a wrong decision or continued in sin or wallowed in self-pity, but I entered the sanctuary. I practiced the discipline of gathering. I came to worship and I got ambushed by God. Thank God for the renewing power of worship. But here's the defining choice that I wanna place before you today. What are you gonna do with your mind during the week when you don't feel like worshiping? You're gonna have times when you don't feel like worshiping, aren't you? On the freeway or at work when things are all going wrong or when you have a really bad hair day. How often are you in an argument with your spouse and your spouse says to you, you're just like your mother and you say, let's just praise the Lord together right now. <laughs> or you're single and you're on a bad date and you realize not only are you not out with Mr. Right, you're out with Mr. Terribly, horribly wrong. How often does that happen and you say, well, let's just praise the Lord anyhow, shall we? Sometimes here's the truth about me. Sometimes I have to argue myself into worship or else my thoughts will go down a different path, just like the psalmist. Here's one of Paul's most staggering statements. Think about this. Paul says in his letter to the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 10:5, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Think for a moment about the fact that Paul really means what he's saying here. I mean, that's quite a staggering statement. Paul is very wise as a, a psychologist about human life. And he understands that whatever the train of our thoughts and feelings and understandings and perceptions, whatever that flow is, our behavior will just come out of that. We can try to deny the train. We can try to force our behavior to be different in isolated moments. But as a general rule, however my thoughts and feelings go, my life will go that direction. I can exercise supreme willpower at crisis moments occasionally, maybe, but by and large, if I don't train the route of my thoughts and feelings, uh, I'm not gonna change my life. And so Paul says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. And that's why he's so devoted to being a lifelong, all the time worshiper, to be saturated in the goodness of the presence of God. So in the time that we have left in this message, I wanna give you three conditions during this next week in which I think it's likely that you are gonna to have to argue yourself into worship. Three conditions in which it will be a challenge for you to take every thought captive to obey Christ. All right, the first one is this. 
and we'll look at three places in the Bible where people actually do it. And the first one is when someone has hurt you or someone has wronged you. Let me ask you, when you're wronged or when you are hurt, where do your thoughts tend to go? If someone hurts me, this is the way that it works in my mind on default. Like I'll try to convince myself that this is a bad person or I'll focus on their flaws or my thoughts will just start to run toward revenge fantasies, uh, you know, where I get even with them somehow. My thoughts will just do that. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas, who were real people, have been preaching in Philippi. They've been sacrificing for the sake of the gospel. And one of the great works they do is deliver a slave girl from an evil spirit. This is, a, this is a, an amazing work of God. And you would think there would just be an outpouring of gratitude and joy because of their ministry and their deliverance, but there's not. The owners of this girl are upset because they're gonna lose money, the money that they made from her prophesying. They were exploiting her. These were con men. Acts 16, 22, these men have Paul and Silas arrested. And then it says this, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now let's just pause here for a moment. Like how would you respond at this point? Like what would be going through your mind? You're trying to serve God. You're sacrificing to serve God. You've given up comfort, your home, financial security, all of that to serve God. And the result is you're attacked by greedy con men, arrested on trumped up charges, denied your rights, beaten and placed in chains. What kind of thoughts would be running through your mind? Now look at verse 25, this is amazing. About midnight, Paul and Silas, so they're beaten, bloodied and imprisoned, were praying and singing hymns to God. And then this wonderful little afterthought, and the other prisoners were listening to them. <laughs> like they had any alternatives. There were no other channels in that prison. It was all praise all the time. That's all they had to listen to. And then verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. Very often in scripture, you'll find worship is associated with a, a great outpouring of the power of God. And the jailer is ready to kill himself. Again, it's so interesting, Paul doesn't say, well, I guess next time you'll have to think twice before you start persecuting Christians. Paul doesn't say that. Because of his worship and prayer, his heart is tender and compassionate, and he's ready to share his faith, to extend grace, and welcome this man who beat and imprisoned him to be one of his brothers. This week, you're gonna get hurt. And so I'm asking you now, will you enter the sanctuary? Will you, will you say, God, I'm not gonna respond to anger like a brute beast. I'm gonna acknowledge that you are my Lord, not my anger. I'm gonna do my best with your spirit's help to take every thought captive. I will pray and I will ask for help and I will affirm that you are Lord, even over hurtful circumstances, and I'll worship you. But you need to decide that now. Don't wait until then. All right, so the first time that you're going to have to take thoughts captive is when someone hurts you or wrongs you. The second time this week when you're gonna have to do this 
is when you're disappointed. How does your mind run when things don't turn out the way you want? Because they don't, not for anyone. So what happens then? My own thoughts, like this is just me, will often tend to give in to self-pity or I'll start to, start to feel sorry for myself or I'll start to uh, see myself as a victim and I'll forget God's many gifts to me unless I enter the sanctuary. I want you to look at some staggering words in the Old Testament in Habakkuk 3. Uh, he's one of the minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament. And this has got to be one of the most beautiful passages in all of Scripture. Habakkuk 3.17. And you'll see a remarkable uh, entrance into the sanctuary here. This is what Habakkuk says at the end of his prophetic word when he views uh, devastation all around him, disappointment, nothing is turning out right. Habakkuk 3.17, this is what he says. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, there are, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Now, before we go on, you have to remember this is an agricultural society. So what he's describing here is total devastation, total devastation, ruin, hopeless circumstances. There's nothing else. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vine, though, there, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. Not produce, not flocks, not portfolios, not financial assets, not popularity or power or status. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. I don't know how else to say it, but you're going to be disappointed this week. People will let you down. Finances will fluctuate. Something in your career will not turn out the way you want. What are you gonna do? Now, of course, there's a time for grieving over loss and pain. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, there is a time to mourn, but there is also a time for this defiant spirit of worship that says, no circumstance in this world has the power to separate me from the love of God that is mine in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you've got to figure out how Habakkuk 3.17 would be written for you. Maybe you need to write it out. Though the Dow Jones drops 50%, though social security runs out, though I'm unemployed, though I'm divorced, though relationships have disappointed me, though I didn't get the parents or the spouse or the children I had hoped for, though I have cancer, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. This week when you're disappointed, will you enter the sanctuary? All right, the third thing that's gonna happen this week when you're going to have to take thoughts captive is when you're afraid. When I'm afraid, I can get tempted to give up. Just avoid, just take the easy way out, try to escape. The last passage of scripture is 2 Chronicles 20. It's the story of Judah and King Jehoshaphat. Uh, he's the king and the people of God's enemies are marching against them and they're vast. It's a vast army that they're facing, a number of nations. And we're told in verse three that Jehoshaphat was afraid. Alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. 
And now we pick it up at verse 12. This is Jehoshaphat praying now. Our God, will you not judge them, the enemies? For we have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Then the spirit of the Lord came on Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, and lots of sons. You don't really even know, need to know about them. So on to verse 17. Uh, this is the word of the Lord that comes to the people. This is what God says. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your position, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you. Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground, and all the people of Judah and Jerusalem fell down in worship before the Lord. Then some Levites from the Kohathites and the Korahites stood up and praised the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. Um, as they set out, just Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, Judah and people of Jerusalem, have faith in the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will, you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out ahead of the army saying, give thanks to the Lord for he, for his love endures forever. As they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Am Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir who were invading Judah and they were defeated. They faced insurmountable odds, were filled with fear. They sought the Lord and God said, praise me, give worship to me. And they did. Now picture the scene, right? Jehoshaphat sends out a team before the army, not of warriors, but of worshipers. And they go out singing. And we don't know what the music was. I imagine them singing the song, Trust in God, and kind of like hopping across the plain. In the midst of opposition and fear, they entered the sanctuary and they worship and praised God and the world looked different to them. They realized God is much bigger than their problems. This week, you're gonna be afraid sometime. Will you worship and then live in boldness? Like have the hard conversation and share your faith even though you're afraid to. And here's the key point to all of this, in each of these situations, worship came first and then transformation. The psalmist went into the sanctuary even while the wicked were still prospering and while he was still tempted to give in to envy, even when the temptation was still going on, he went in and worshiped and then everything changed. Paul and Silas worshiped before the earthquake. They were still in prison. Habakkuk praised God while the vines were still empty and the fields were still barren and the flocks were still gone. The Israelites advanced and praised while the enemy armies were still intact. In every case, worship was, as it always is, at least in part, a discipline. It's an act of faith. It's a statement of trust. And now it's up to us. Now it's your day. This is our chance this week. You're going to be tempted like the psalmist. You're going to be hurt like Paul and Silas. You're going to be disappointed like Habakkuk. You're going to be afraid like Jehoshaphat. You can, if you want to, live in envy and discouragement and resentment and fear. 
You can live with a non-worshipping mind, or you can take every thought captive, and you can enter into the sanctuary, and you can worship this great God, and your whole life, your whole world can be turned upside down. (laughs) I hope you choose that path. All right, let me pray for you. God, I pray that you would make us a worshiping people. God, help us to learn from the psalmist in Psalm 73, how he entered the sanctuary and his whole perspective, his whole life was changed. Help us to enter into a times of worship this week and help us to gather next week so that we can be in your presence and we can sing songs to you and we can allow you to touch our hearts and our minds and give us new perspective and radically transform us by that experience that we have with you. God, would you lead us into those times this week and prepare us for what you're going to do the next time we gather. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, If you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. Uh, For directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, And we hope to see you on Sunday soon.